This is The Film File. This is episode 96. The film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hit it, George. So that's a clue to what we're going to be talking about in this week's show when it comes to the deep dive. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Beacon. And welcome, as ever, to your favourite film podcast starring Andy Meekin and Lee Ford, The Film File. <laughs> How have you been, Andy? I'd hate, I'd hate to hear their least favourite. <laughs> yeah, there's a dark domain. You know, like the Mirrorverse in, in Star Trek, there's a there's a Mirrorverse version of us. But actually, the beard that you're oh, that, working on. Well, yeah. It's, you've um, gone for Spock's I was about beard. To say that. I was about to say that. We must be the dark universe if I've got this beard. Yeah, so, that is uh, the dark universe version. So out, there, there's a, out there, there's a better version of this podcast. For those who are not so, watching um, on um, uh, full panoramic uh, YouTube, YouTube, Andy's growing his Spock's beard. Which sounds a lot well, ruder than what it actually is. <laughs> Think it through next time before you open your mouth. I keep please. that. I keep that nicely trimmed. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm having a tired week because I'm, I'm working a lot of night shifts and I'm not getting a lot of downtime and I'm just feeling lack of energy and I think it's making me a bit grumpy as well. And what hasn't helped issues this week? I've seen that advert for that Christmas department store that everyone gets excited about each year and it's reminded me of something that i absolutely despise in entertainment and that is slowed down breathy female vocal versions of otherwise energetic songs <laughs> yes i know the type uh oh. there was a guns and roses one a couple of years back i don't remember the ad <laughs> but i do remember the uh, breathy female vocal what what track are they using on that it's electric we could dreams. say it on this on this uh um on this show because we you know, <laughs> it's electric we have... dreams that they use is it yeah well as you know one of my very close friends uh was involved with the original version of that song yep uh, and yep. I, I was supposed to meet for coffee this week but we didn't get around to it due to him being famous and me not type thing <laughs> and uh he had famous people stuff to do which may have been to do with that actually now that kind of makes sense yeah i you it's it's interesting that we've got to that stage where christmas is now the the big indicator for christmas is that advert <laughs> yeah and especially now in this city we don't have that store yeah everyone gets excited about it each year makes it into a huge event and it's always got a breathy female vocal sing thankfully other supermarkets such as uh Tesco's uh, are going for, I mean, that, their one is better because it starts off with like a brass band version of Don't Stop Me Now, but then kicks into proper queen Don't Stop Me Now, full of life, full of energy. That's what I want, not melancholy, depressive nonsense, which turns an otherwise great track with a lot of upbeat energy into something so, so dull and depressing. I mean, it's... It's a fad for remaking songs that has become far too prominent. Uh, Black Widow with the breathy female vocal version of Smells Like Teen Spirit. No, I hated it. I hated that. With the lights out. Go away. You've lost everything that that song's about. You've made that song commercial. And it's not supposed to be commercial. It was a hypocrisy that it became a commercial song in the first place because it was a stab <laughs> against it. Um, it, I mean, it's an attempt to give sombre meaning to otherwise irrelevant lyrics. And it reminds me of another thing that bugs me. And oh, we're on a rant. If you want to go and get a cup, a cup of tea now <laughs> without turning off, Andy's on a rant. Now, now's your time. And this bugs me, this bugs me significantly at the moment because the wife is currently doing a rewatch of the show that bugs me the most for it. And, you know, at the end of, like, usually hospital dramas, and they have yeah. those, like, some indie music playing while a voiceover says about three lines of dialogue but takes ten minutes to do them. 
And Grey's Anatomy is the one that I'm clearly looking at here. <laughs> and the message, when you take all the words that are said, it's usually nonsense when put together. It's something that Scrubs did as well. And um, on the Fake Doctors Real Friends podcast, they've actually picked up on the fact that they've had analysed what was said and worked out that it was utter, utter rubbish. They, <laughs> it, it ended up being things like um, them saying, like, friends have to be remembered to be friends, first as friends, and are always friends. But because it's spread out over three minutes, you don't quite get that it's just a cobble of words together. It's word salad. Oh. That's when it becomes poignant, <laughs> though, isn't it? When? <laughs> Somebody. Takes the time. All these moments <laughs> are you and me. To say something. All these memories are born. Then you feel. It's going to have. Took a stone and you carved on me. A deeper All meaning. And it doesn't. We should end every show with just like a random indie track and like you can talk over it and just say random words. <laughs> In fact, we'll just we'll just get a bag full of random words and just pull them out one at a time and just say it every minute and just see if we can concoct a sentence. <laughs> but yeah, aside from that rant, how's your week been? <laughs> um, it's been okay. A bit like you, very tiring. Um, I'm not adjusting well to, to the lack of light. I hate... Absolutely, test coming home in, in darkness, and uh, I'm I'm just I'm just knackered all the time, and and there's so much that I'm not watching that I I should be getting around to watching. I'm finding yeah. really really difficult swamp with work, and just the dark nights it kind of puts me off. I'm 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 wanting to go to bed by nine, which is so not me. But yeah, I think it's just this time of year. I think it's uh, uh, the build to Christmas. A lot going on. Lot going on work-wise, band-wise, uh, everything at the moment with the anticipation of what's going to happen in the new year as regards yeah. the film that I'm going to mention at, at, at some later stage. So uh, yeah, yeah, just just really, really um, rushed off my feet and and, and knackered. I did did catch up with the end of Why the Last Man, and there's a series which I loved but ran out of steam about halfway through season one. So I know that we mentioned that it had been cancelled and we at this yeah. stage we don't know if it has been picked up by another channel but i was i was starting to lose interest fast and uh, even though it stayed true to the book i, I went mm. back and read the first two graphic novels and it does stay pretty true to it and uh, uh ultimately I, I i i wasn't asked which is always yeah. the worst thing about any series when you think i'm not asked but i am so behind and and uh, trying to do a bit of a steady catch up Anyway, I ploughed through all of the what we do in the shadows. So I've, um, I saw the return of the master. And... Oh, that's what I was waiting for you to see. <laughs> oh, that man. was the moment. What a great episode! It's uh, so yeah. good, but uh, it seems super, super sweary this season. And and the 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 end of the season. Oh, such baiting for the next season. I know. Oh I man, it. I just love it, and um, it is it is a charm. There has been that Ted Lasso. And a couple of other series, even even Sweet Tooth to a degree, yeah, which are just are just kind of there's nothing wrong with nice and hopeful, yeah, there really isn't. Anyway, on this show this week, we will be looking at a deep dive into what really is uh, a groundbreaking movie, 
we'll be talking about Richard Lester and the Beatles, Hard Day's Night, in anticipation of the Peter Jackson documentary. Andy will be reviewing Passing, which landed on Netflix this week, and Crime Macho, which is on a limited release at cinemas. And we're both going to be talking about Red Notice. We've got our neat thing, but before that, of course, the moment you've all been waiting for. And we have it's so big we have to put it at the beginning of the show. Here is the news. So as ever, we're going to kick off with box office. And Andy, how is Eternals looking? So this weekend, Eternals saw a drop off of 61% in the US. Uh, When you look at Black Widow did a 67% drop off, it was on streaming. And Shang-Chi did a 52% drop off. It wasn't on streaming, but it had much better reviews than what the Eternals had. Eternals ended up taking 27.5 million over this past weekend. It still retained the top spot in the US box office, but it is a bit of a significant drop. The US total so far is now around 118 million, and the worldwide total is 281 million. It was a 200 million budgeted film, so this is going to be a struggle for them at this rate to get to that three times your budget to break even. Yeah, now with all that poor reaction critically, it had a bit of an uphill struggle. But I'm finding and I'm I'm assuming you're pretty much the same that word of mouth for those who have seen it is pretty good, which is contrary to the critics. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's generally getting a very positive reaction from audiences whether that's because the critics had lowered people's expectations phenomenally or as I'd like to think because it is genuinely a good film. It's just a different film. It's a very different film from what Marvel normally put out. And that's probably what the critics' reaction was. We've discussed it in a bit more detail in a previous episode, so we won't go into into detail of why we think the critics went against it. But it is good to see that it is generating some business anyway. We'll see whether it's got legs, whether it'll keep going for another four weeks, five weeks. But at this point in time, that, that bit of a huge drop-off means that it's going to be a bit of a struggle for them to get to that profit. It's currently taken $7.3 million at the UK box office, which isn't bad. No. Second place in the US this weekend, and it doesn't come out for a few more weeks here. And it's going to be film of the year, let's be honest. Clifford the Big Red Dog. Well, that was the, uh, that was a surprise, wasn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it took second place with $16.4 million opening weekend in the US. It's decent enough considering it's also gone straight to Paramount+. Plus at the same time. And it's hoped that this one's going to hold over well for the next two weeks, as it's the only kids film until Disney's Encanto lands for Thanksgiving. Okay. So you can see why they've dropped it now. It's not got a lot of competition. And let's be honest, regardless of whether the film is good or bad for us as grown men, it's aimed at kids. Absolutely. And we shouldn't even be a factor, should it really? The grown-ups are going, <laughs> yeah, this is not the, uh, this is not the Clifford from my childhood. Yeah, grow up. <laughs> Um, interestingly enough, though, is is Clifford an international draw? I mean, the, the main problem with, with very young kids' films is you, you take them to see it, they might go again. They don't really have legs, these sorts of films, do they? I mean, once once the target market's, market's done... Cliff, Clifford has done. four big legs. Oh, I see what you did there. Very clever. <laughs> well, the thing is, I mean, I, I know from when my kids were growing up that Clifford was becoming quite big for the kids market in the UK. So it has broken that US barrier and it has got international recognition. Whether it's enough to generate significant revenue, we don't know. Maybe the inclusion of Jack Whitehall will convince some British people to go. 
more likely it's going to convince most of us to not go. But um, at least it's not got James Corden. That's a story for another time. <laughs> uh, June held third place with 5.5 million in the US, which takes the total US takings to 93 million. And worldwide is now up to 351 million. Not bad for a film that people were kind of, oh, is it a bit too cerebral, a sci-fi for general audiences? Well, we had these conversations, didn't didn't we? Uh, Building up to the release of Dune, would it find a crowd? Was it too cerebral? I mean, we have championed it for some time, but we had our doubts. Come on. We yeah. were there. We were we were knew that it was going to be a, a, a good movie. We were just concerned whether it had uh, it, it could find the audience it needed. Yeah. In the UK, June has now come is now up to a total takings of 18 million. So it's it's definitely got it's definitely got its audience. And I'm seeing at our box office at the cinema that particularly the evening shows are still selling well. So I think it's it's one that's going to keep trekking through those sand dunes for a few more weeks to come. Oh, and James this. Bond still has no time to die and is still holding in at fourth place in the US with 4.6 million. The worldwide total now stands at a whopping 708.7 million. Fast Nine was the only other Hollywood film this year to pass the 700 million mark. Oh, really? That was a surprise. I didn't, didn't expect that. Right. OK, so that means it's we said it has to reach 900 million and it's in the 800. 800 to 900 is what most of the experts and analysts are saying. If it can get past 800, then it's scraping profit. Um, if it can get past 900, it's more than got profit. If it hadn't have been delayed so many times and had to redo its marketing four or five times and accrue interest on the loans that it took out, it would have already been into profit. So this is a success. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think, as we've said again on previous shows, that we are living in new times and there are new boundaries and barriers to success. And and I'm sure the accountants at all these places are taking that into consideration. I mean, I, mean, I know money yeah. is money and profit is profit, but they are unusual times that we're living in still. And we don't know whether we will go into um, any restrictions as we move into the winter in the UK. So... Yeah. You know, it's it's to say they've got that far right now is is, is good news. Uh, it means that the worldwide box office for 2021 now has Fast Nine in third place with 721 million takings worldwide and No Time to Die in fourth place with 708 million. First and second place are two films that were Chinese made films and only had a Chinese release and they've taken 874 million and 822 million. Uh, they are the battle at Lake Lake Shanglin and High Mom. Two things that we've not seen in this country. We've not seen released internationally, but it just shows how critical that Chinese market is. And both Fast Nine, No Time to Die, and even Dune got released in the Chinese markets. But No Time to Die in Dune unfortunately got released as Chinese cinemas were closing down again. Fast Nine had the bonus of being open when China was completely open again. Yeah, when we now understand why it is such a crucial market and. So clearly, Shang-Chi and Eternals has suffered by not getting that so important Chinese release. But we've yeah. talked about that on a previous show, which seems to be this week's mantra. <laughs> That's it for the box office. What other news do you have for us, Andy? Over the past week, uh, Disney Plus Day hit and landed, bringing us some new animations, some new releases, quite a, quite a good drop of content, including the Home Sweet Home Alone film that I've not watched because I don't like Home Alone anyway, so I'm probably no, never going to watch yeah, Home not Sweet drawn, Home Alone. Yeah, not drawn to it. But I've, he- I've heard people say 
you know what? It's not as bad as they expected. And some people have even thoroughly enjoyed it. So maybe it's ticking the right boxes for that Christmas theme. Who knows? But anyway, um, the Disney Plus Day overall didn't offer a lot in the way of big reveals. It pretty much told us a lot of things that we already knew, such as there's an Agatha spin-off series. The only difference is we now have a logo and a title for it. It's called House of Harkness. And I quite like that. Yeah, it gave me the impression of being a, a kind of a horror anthology thing. I don't know yeah. if that's what it's going to be, but that's what it made me made me think of. I'm intrigued. Uh, we saw first shots of Moon Knight, She-Hulk, Ms. Marvel, and Secret Invasion, an image of Nick Fury with a beard and no eye patch. That was um, uh, that was fleeting, though, wasn't it? Come on. <laughs> yes. When that very landed, fleeting. that was very fleeting. I, I went, oh, that's Moon Knight. Okay. Just saw a guy <laughs> in white with a cape, and that was it. I do like the the look and design for Moon Knight, though. I think that they've got that spot on. Yeah, but could you see the costume? Did I blink um, and not it's, really see it's it? Been, it's been released separately. Okay. There's been, there's been um, images and a small bit of footage released since... Spider-Man freshman year animated series. Spider-Man animated series, of course, they're going to do it because uh, Spider-Man, it's a big profit. Uh, Marvel Zombies animated series. Uh, I, 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 when I saw that, I, I knew somewhere that there was, I could hear the heart sinking. <laughs> so I, for those who tuned in when we were talking about the What If episodes, you will already know what my feeling on Marvel Zombies is. And it is that, Zombies has been done to death and just putting superheroes into it does not make it anything more than just walking dead all over again. And the Marvel Zombies um, comic book started off good, but then started beating an undead horse after the third volume of it. I'm not excited for it. I am, however, excited for the X-Men 97 animated series getting a new season. I knew that's what you were going to say. I was waiting you to, to, to proclaim the existence of X-Men 97. So, for those who don't know, the X-Men animated series is getting new episodes from Marvel Studios. The X-Men cartoon, if you grew up in the, uh, and you were a nerd in the 90s, chances were you'd spent Saturday morning watching the X-Men cartoon. And it was um, it was one of those cartoon series that, that um, well, I, I don't think we would have had the movies without yeah this series and it was as close as you could possibly get to reading the comic books as the the um, spider-man animated series was from from the 90s as well but a lot of people the x-men cartoon is was their first introduction to the x-men and it, and it tied in quite wonderfully the the feel of it was very very 90s but it looked like a comic book it didn't try to do anything different it, it wasn't as as, as beautiful as, as the Batman series, for instance, but he, it was as near as damn it. It had that kind of John Byrne, Dave Cockrum sort of look to the artwork on it and, and captured the essence of the X-Men. So it was much loved, but apparently yeah. Disney and Marvel Studios are, are doing a follow-up with X-Men 97. And it's the original uh, showrunner who's oh, is it? Um, behind right, okay. the scenes again. He's bringing it back. So it's not just a, a cynical cash grab. It is the original uh, showrunner has said, uh, Let's pick it up again. Let's continue the story. Because what was great about things like that and the Spider-Man one is they kind of adapted all the comic best comic book stories yeah. and played them through. So it was interpreted. If you'd read the comics before you watched the animated series, you could see the beats that they were drawing on and you're like, oh, no, they're doing this, they're doing, this, they're doing Age of Apocalypse, do etc. So it was nice to watch. My only gripe from the whole thing is that loads of people who don't know comics got obsessed about characters such as Gambit. 
and started getting upset that he wasn't showing up in the X-Men films because he's one of the main characters. He was in the cartoon. In the comics, he's not that great a character. I'm sorry. I've just never understood the love for Gambit. But overall, I mean, aside from Storm's dubious way of saying Wolverine, um, it was it was a cracking animated series. Wolverine! Um, <laughs> I wonder what they're going to do, therefore, with the voice cast because, um, you know, nearly 20-odd uh, years later. Yeah. Are those that voice cast still working, and or is it a new voice cast? I I, I guess that's one of the things we're going, we're going to find out. But yeah, that was uh, was it was a a pretty neat little drop that one. As you say, everything else was was fairly predictable. When we got a glimpse yeah. of She Hulk, but when we did, again when we say glimpse, that's exactly what it was. We we also got uh, there's a new Cars film coming to Disney Plus, Cars on the Road, because. We we rarely need more merchandise on that. Uh, Princess and the Frog TV series looks interesting. The Zootopia shorts interested me. That was uh, a great Prey film. is Prey is the title for the new Predator film, which was previously titled Skulls and is going straight to Disney Plus. Yeah, because it's going straight to Hulu, uh, isn't it, in the states? Yeah, so we'll get it over here on Plus. Pinocchio live action will be going straight to Disney Plus. Uh, this was kind of already known, but it was like, well, now that Tom Hanks is involved, will they make it a big screen event? They've confirmed that it is going to be straight onto Disney Plus. It might get a day and date cinema release because it'd be daft not to, uh, but you'll be able to watch it from day one. And um, there's a new Ice Age movie focusing on Simon Pegg's book Wild for those people who are still interested in that franchise that went on about five films too long. How many, yeah, were yeah five the first films one I thought was great. Right I didn't pay any interest <laughs> after that. Yeah. Uh, Cheaper by the Dozen with Zach Braff was teased. The Willow TV series had a little featurette to yeah. introduce it. Disenchanted, we were reminded that that's on its way, and on the same day they dropped Enchanted onto Disney Plus for us all. So that was well worth that's well worth watching. Spiderwick Chronicles TV series looks like it'll tap into the books a lot better than what the film did. Uh, pretty much all things that we already knew were in the pipeline, but we basically got teased logos and production art from behind the scenes. Yeah, there wasn't much in the way of Star Wars. I noticed no uh, some production art for the Obi One series including one image which shows obi-wan clashing with darth vader so that's obviously going to get the fanboys all excited and giddy at the fact that hey we get to see him fight because we haven't seen them fight in a lightsaber battle ever before have we <laughs> no <laughs> but yeah it was very light on the star wars one but i think it's because they've already revealed pretty much everything star wars that's coming to disney plus yeah there's we not get really anything of... else that they can tease us with yeah, we get the books of Boba Fett fairly soon, yeah. don't we? Yeah. Also, I was interested with um, Pixar are doing a behind-the-scenes uh, documentary of the production of Red and Lightyear. And I love the Pixar behind-the-scenes things. I love to see how their creative energies, particularly, I mean, this is going to be interesting because Red's a new concept. It's basically the Incredible Hulk with a cuddly bear. So it's how they come up with great, fresh, new, original ideas that they can have fun with. But then how... How have they come up with the idea for Lightyear? Where did that spring from? And what made them think that this is a huge blockbuster? You get to see those creative processes behind the scenes. I love things like that. I, yeah. It's the same reason that I love extras on DVDs. I love the meat and bones of how the industry works. But you and I are both old school as well for that, aren't we? Because we like our our physical copy. We do, yes. I, I, do, I do like holding something solid in my hand. That sounds wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I oh dear! I do like having a having a nicely curated Blu-ray collection of films that I know that I want to keep revisiting, and 
preferably ones that have nice little behind the scenes documentaries or even a even a, a director's commentary or cast commentary. Yeah, I just like anything with insider information. Well, well, when we're still talking of uh, of, of the Disney drop this weekend, did you notice that? Uh, the Marvel films that they're showing us, they are showing the IMAX versions of. Yes, uh, the, on on Plus, there's 13 of them. I think we mentioned it briefly last week. Yeah, I watched Shang-Chi again. I uh, watched it with the child. And uh, I, I, you know what? I enjoyed it much more the second time, even though, you know, I was up for it for the first time. But but yeah. seeing it, I I mentioned what, what the problems I had with it. But seeing it this second time, and especially seeing it in its full sort of IMAX display, it was it was it is a thing of beauty. And well, we know we have mentioned that, but it did look great. I've still got to do a rewatch of um, Shang Chi, so uh, that'll be on my cards over this next week, probably. Disney are also going to keep a flexible release strategy, not committing fully to a theatrical exclusivity, and they're still going to progress for the short term with shorter windows as they watch the market carefully to see what consumers flock to and what sidelined. Whilst recent films such as Shang-Chi and even Eternals have scored fantastically at the box office, even if not critically, other films such as Ridley Scott's Last Duel seriously underperformed. So Bob Chapek's been speaking with investors this week, and he said, we're watching very, very carefully different types of movies to see how the different components of the demographics of that market come back. You'll notice that the films we are putting into the marketplace that are theatrical and our family films have a fairly short window. We're doing that, obviously, so we can get our films quicker to Disney+, Plus, but at the same time, see if the theatrical market can kick back into full gear as we prime the pump with these films. And in addition, for those wondering why there hasn't been a Disney Investor Day like there was last year, it appears that Disney are moving away from those kind of public announcements, given the number of cancellations, delays, etc. that we have in this time. Right. As Chapek said, we're going to do what's best for our shareholders, ultimately. We don't announce our films that far in advance like we used to because we know we're in a time of flux and change, which kind of makes sense. It's probably the reason why there wasn't a lot of new things that were released during the Disney Plus day because they don't want to announce stuff that we don't... I mean, Blade, we still don't have a definitive date for, for Blade. That was announced two years ago. That was cast two years ago. So it, it's clear that they just want to be a bit cautious with the multiple delays that happen. Yeah, I mean, as we said before, you have one knock-on event and it knocks on across the whole industry. You know, if one actor's not available for two months and is dedicated to finishing a, a film, then, yeah. then they've got to find time further down the line to, to fit that actor in. Uh, and, and I think that's been part of the problem with Blade. Interestingly enough, as a bit of a side note on it, hopefully by now you'll have seen Eternals. Did, did you pick up on the fact that it was Blade at the end of that uh, um, now, I Black Knight scene? Didn't, I didn't when we watched it. It was one of them that was like, I recognise that voice, where they recognise that voice. But the advantage of working at a cinema is I've now seen that final <laughs> scene about a hundred times in the past week. And it was on about the third time of like being in the screen at the end of it, waiting to clean it, that I suddenly went, that's Marashara Ali. It's Blade. Got it. Yeah. And that, that was it. As soon as, a re as soon as a twig, the voice, because he's got one of those voices that isn't so prominently known, but it's, it's kind of familiar and it just nagged at the back of my mind every time that I heard it. And once it, it triggered me, it was like, that's the introduction of Blade. So Blade is probably coming along somewhere along the line. We still need to know when. I think what you love about the whole Blade thing and him being cast is how, how gracious Wesley Snipes has been yes. on social media about it. One, one could really, say almost surprised, really. Because yeah, <laughs> he's, he's been pushing to play that character again ever since Blade 
Trinity came out, he's been constantly saying like, I'm Blade, I'm Blade, I'm Blade, I'm Blade. And you would have expected, and loads of people expected that when he wasn't cast, that he would have been like sulky. But he's actually been like, no, well done. He's going to be great. He's a fantastic actor. And he he still says like, uh, jokingly, he's like, but everyone knows I'm really Blade. Um, Which, fair enough. Uh, We'll we'll let him have that because he's so gracious in passing passing the reins over to someone else. Marvellous. Maybe he's hoping for a multiverse crossover where he gets to play Blade as well. (laughs) Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 has officially begun shooting, as confirmed via James Gunn's social media feeds this week. A picture of him posted on Twitter of him and the key cast, Pratt, Saldana, Bautista, Gillen, Gunn and Clementine, as well as Will Poulter and Chakwudi Awuji. Meanwhile, we don't know who Chakwudi is going to be playing. We've got no idea. So that sudden inclusion in there is like, what? Hey, hey, whoa, if that's key cast, why have you not told us this, Gun? Damn you and your secrets. Uh, meanwhile, Sylvester Stallone has confirmed that he's also going to be popping up in the film, okay. which Gunn has said this film is going to be a definitive end for the Guardian series, uh, which sounds ominous. Stallone appeared in the previous film as Stakaro Gord, otherwise known to comic book geeks as Starhawk, who was one of the original Guardians of the Galaxy from the comics. And sticking with Marvel, because there's a lot of Marvel news, Doctor Strange is undergoing what's reported as extensive reshoots and additional photography in LA at the moment. Now, reshoots are a normal part of the creative process, but it's the amount that are being done with Strange that has raised some eyebrows across the industry. Six days per week for six weeks at least is what's being reported. Uh, Sam Raimi remains on board, so this isn't a let's put Joss Whedon in charge of it situation again. And uh, Loki head writer Michael Waldron is penning some new material to insert in there. Now, the rumour or mongering clickbait are reporting this as though something major is wrong. But the reliable trades are pointing out something that I'd kind of speculated, which is that it's more a logistical issue that's being caused by COVID restrictions, actor availability issues, or slowdowns due to the lockdowns and restrictions. So it kind of ties in with the recent reshuffle of release dates that Marvel have done to allow more post-production time. It won't surprise me if all the Marvel films that have already been in production will be suffering the same extensive reshoots as a result. Because when you have to like have restrictions and people have to be in hotels for 15 days before they can start shooting and you can only have these people on set with these people, it's going to cause complications that you only pick up on on the editing process. Absolutely. I mean, this really does hit in to all kinds of scheduling. You know, it's, it's difficult enough trying to make a movie. It's more difficult when your actors aren't available or can't be available because of COVID restrictions. And, you know, and, and hands off to the industry. You know, everything we've, we've talked about, which has had a, a, a negative uh, prism of, of what the uh, industry can be about. This is hats off to them, how well they've treated the COVID situation. And, you know, you can see it in movies now. There was, there was certainly a stage when a lot of TV... And I mentioned this about Loki and, and Walking Dead in previous episodes. They were restricted to two characters per episode just because you could tell COVID was, was hitting yeah. in and, and biting at their heels. But what what we have seen is that, you know, uh, the responsibility of, of the big studios to make sure cast and crew are safe and well. I'm seeing difficulties across the music industry right now, which are with tours being cancelled and, and artists having to delay work but i think the movie industry's handled this pretty well and of course there will be knock-on effects because it's going to add to budget it's going to add add to production time yeah so we're in different times so we need to stop taking any talks of i mean we shouldn't get obsessed about reshoots anyway like i said at the start it's a part of the industry anyway and every big blockbuster always plans for a reshooting schedule 
it's it's on, it's only in the editing process that you realize you need to get different shots this one didn't quite work you didn't quite get the reaction that you wanted from that and that's why reshoots are a part of it we're just in a time that more reshoots are needed because of the circumstances of filming and and marvel write into their into their contracts and into their production schedules yeah extensive reshoots and you know when you're juggling because let's be honest when you're making one marvel movie you're basically making six at the same time so yeah. you you you're juggling a lot of narratives um, which is for me now is becoming to its detriment but that's the way it is so you are constantly juggling and creating new material based on how well did loki do and how does loki tie yeah. into it so if there's a change in head writer or an actor drops out or whatever all those combinations are going to hit home with the choices that that that, that are made and, and have to be rectified at some point. Now, if you haven't seen Eternals, just skip ahead slightly, because I'm just going to touch on something from the, one of the mid-credits stings of Eternals. As we've already touched upon one of the spoilers. <laughs> yeah. If you haven't, and you don't want any spoilers at all for the mid-credits stings, which I don't think is a major spoiler, to be honest with you, just skip ahead like three minutes. The mid-credits sting had the, uh, the Eternals who were heading off into space to try to find more of their own, getting taken away by a Celestial who says that, He's going to use their memories to judge Earth and see whether it's worthy. And I speculated at work the next day, talking to a few of my buddies, that he's going to judge Earth unworthy, and that will send a cosmic force to Earth to bring a menace. And the menace that I thought was perfect for it would be Galactus, who I see as in the MCU would be introduced as like an entity sent by the Celestials to wipe out civilizations. Now, the writers of Eternals, Ryan Furpo and Matthew Furpo, apparently are very keen to bring Galactus to the MCU. So it looks like I've kind of called it. Um, Galactus is an amazing character and a villain. We are, you know, obviously setting the stage for intergalactic cosmic megalith confrontations, especially when you kill a space god. And then the space god comes and kidnaps you and plans to judge Earth. I think the door is very much open for world-eating villains. There's definitely conversations about these post credit sequences, about who we're introducing, where we're going. Galactus is one of those iconic figures of the Marvel Universe that we're excited to see. But sometimes I think you leave yourself open. You leave these doors open and who knows what's happening in number two. Maybe you're too busy saving a Celestial from Galactus that you end up incurring his wrath. Anything's possible. So it looks like I picked up on what they were hinting at. Is there kind of a reward scheme for you here, Andy? Because I, I, I really I feel really, that there should be. I, I need like medals across my chest for every time <laughs> that I predict where they're going with something. You can have a no it, prize. It, it, I mean, it really does, because I said that it'd be ideal if the big Avengers-esque kind of bring together all the team event for this phase of Marvel will come after Fantastic Four. And so they introduce Fantastic Four, and then it's the coming of Galactus to follow, to bring everyone together. I might get to see my wish fulfilled on the screen, but more than anything, we'll hopefully get to see a really cartoony looking Galactus pop up in a big costume, because that's what was missing from that. Fantastic Four Rise of the Surfer movie. <laughs> yes, I was fine with the cosmic cloud, but I want to see a great big man in blue and purple. Yeah, with, with horns on, on his helmet, so to speak. Oh, <laughs> yeah, this and, has been and such a smutty well. show so far. <laughs> we should put a warning at the beginning. <laughs> warning, smut included. Okay, we've stopped talking about Eternals. Hopefully you're back. So we're going to move on to Ridley Scott, who's been chatting a lot recently. He's got the upcoming House of Gucci. So he's been yeah, promoting trailer that. Yeah, good. By the way. And he's also been chatting about The Last Duel, which lands on home rental this week. Uh, he spoke about the underperformance of Last Duel, commenting, it was exceedingly disappointing. The fatal thing is, when you think you've got it, you haven't. I thought I'd got it on Blade Runner, and I hadn't. I was crucified by a big critic at the time called Pauline Kale. 
It's why I never read critiques ever. You have to be your own decider. If you worry about what the audience is thinking and what they may want, that's fatal. A good film will find itself. And now Blade Runner is in the Library of Congress. So he's he's not bothered of the underperformance because, as he's, as he's rightly pointed out, underperforming films become some of the most beloved of all times. And I think it is a disappointment that Last Duel didn't get the audience, but I think it was just released at the wrong time. Yeah, I think it would have been better if it got released January, February, award season. It would have been snapped up a lot better. But in another interview, he shared his thoughts on comic book superheroes. Did somebody ask him? Did, did a journo jump in and say, hey, Ridley, what do you think of Marvel films? As is the uh, uh, reported to your question now. Well, sadly... No. Oh, okay. He forced the conversation wrong. that way. Did he know? Do you think he knew that was going to be asked? I think he suspected or, or he, he anticipated that maybe it would. But the whole lot of the interview, it's an interview with Deadline and it's well worth reading because it's a very interesting insight into his creative process, his history, his thoughts on why he, like, how he makes films, why he's in the industry, etc. Great interview. But then it just gets to the end of him talking about one thing and he finishes the, something completely like irrelevant to the subject saying the best films are driven by the characters and we'll come to superheroes after this if you want because i'll crush it i'll effing crush it they're effing boring as shit and i just read that bit and went oh ridley what have you done <laughs> and then obviously the next question from the interview is like what have you got against superhero movies so he then goes into a whole rant about their scripts are not any effing good i think i've done three great scripted superhero movies one would be alien with sigourney weaver one would be effing gladiator and one would be harrison ford they're superhero movies so why don't the superhero movies have better stories sorry i got off the rail but i mean come on they're mostly saved by special effects and that's become boring for everyone who works with special effects if you've got money and it's like mate i know that the the journalists of these this day and age are getting lazy and we've ranted about it a few times that they're lazily asking famous directors what they think of superhero movies but they weren't going to ask him this and he's forced the conversation. And as you can imagine, there's a backlash online from the comic book community going, how dare he say that about my beloved films? Oh, let him. Let him say it. Does it affect how you enjoy the film? No. no. He's entitled to his opinion. I just think that the disappointment here is that he, he was doing a really great interview and then he's forced the narrative to this. And this is what's become the focus for the rest of the interview. No one wants to read the rest of the interview. They just want the soundbite from this. Now, yeah, yeah. And it's a shame. But I, I urge you, go on to search for Deadline Ridley Scott, read the full interview. It's a great interview with a cracking director who deserves to have his opinion on anything. He just gets a bit passionate about things. And I can kind of see that in the way that he ranted there. He rants more than I do. And I've got a lot of respect for him for that. Um, however, on the flip side, Paul Thomas Anderson of Magnolia, Phantom Thread, Boogie Nights, There Will Be Blood. You know, surely he doesn't like comic book movies. Turns out he loves the hell out of them. <laughs> he's He's been in an interview this week saying, like, he's 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 adores them. He has so much fun with them. Him and his family, a big Marvel household. He even enjoyed Venom too. That's how much he loves comic book movies. You would not expect it from someone who gave us, like, such great dramas and um, intriguing insights into humanity. But wow, thank you, Paul Thomas Anderson. You, you've settled the balance a bit more there. You'll, you'll stop the fanboys from ranting too much. I have some news as well. So back what in 2007, Guillermo del Toro expressed a desire to adapt a, a very much a cult 60s TV series, which I remember into a movie. And that series was The Champions. I'll tell you a little about The Champions if uh, you, you, you don't remember them. But it, one of those things with Guillermo del Toro announces a lot of projects. 
and this one fell into the mire of, of his own personal development hell. Anyway, the idea is back on with Ben Stiller, Kate Blanchett attached to do that, that particular series. So the champions, not the Marvel comic. It was originally created for ITV back in 1968 and, and followed three intelligence agents, uh, Richard Barrett, Craig Sterling, and a scientist doctor, Sharon McCready, whose plane crashed high in the Himalayas. The three awoke three days later with vague memories of them being treated for their injuries to discover that they now had powers and uh, uh, unknown human abilities. ESP, uh, super healing strength, increased strength, uh, and which are all pretty handy if you become a, a, a band of three handy spies. Anyway, it seems as though it's going to be made into a movie at last with uh, Blanchett and Stiller starring. Interesting, though, it is such a, a long forgotten series. It's not one of those series like The Prisoner, for instance, which everybody has some kind of recognition with it. I hope they treat it respectfully and do something interesting with the concept as opposed to doing what still has, has done before with things like, I don't know, Starsky and Hutch, where they, they, they lampooned it. I'd like them to do, do something weird, different and strange with it and staying true to what the champions was. I have a vague memory of it. My first crush, I think, was Alexander Bastara, who was the, who played Sharon McCready. And I remember yeah. loving it as a kid because that was about as close as uh, I got to superhero uh, TV. No, I didn't see it in its original 1960s uh, run, by the way. But I, I, I have such a soft spot for it. I'd like to see them. Uh, I'd like to see them do it properly and do it with care rather than lampoon it. Also, interestingly yeah. enough, I dated the daughter of the person who wrote the theme tune for the champions. <laughs> there you go. I think that's a Trivial Pursuit question. I think you can find that online. That's a claim to fame. Yeah. I, I was reading up on this and there's there's no details on whether it's going to keep itself set in its 60s setting, similar to what the Man From U.N.C.L.E. movie did in recent years, which it was such a shame that we never got a second one. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It didn't quite live up to expectation, but you know what? I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I do think that the champions would translate well to a modern setting so I'll be happy with a contemporary update. I'm interested for it. I didn't really get onto the champions. I've caught some episodes over it's the years. It's a bit pedestrian by today's standards, yeah. but but back in but as, as it's one of, it's one of those concepts with so much so much potential in it that yeah, it could just be a whole new franchise for a modern era. Yeah, I mean they don't have to be reverent to it because uh, it's um, you know it's not like the prisoner where you've got to have some amount of reverence for for the original source material yeah. as a starting off point it's it's an interesting starting off point and interestingly Stuart Damon passed away recently who was the uh, American member of the trio some some rapid news to round off with so MGM is close to securing the rights to a lethal weapon-esque action comedy from J with Jason Momoa and Dave Bautista the actors have pitched the project this week with Jonathan Tropper who's worked with them for C on Apple TV plus and they've wrote the script from an idea that the three had together. The plan is for MGM to develop and all three have major deals set up for when production starts. There's no director assigned and no real details on it yet. But with those names involved, market is one to watch out for. John M. Chu is to direct the animated adaptation of Dr. Seuss's Oh, The Places You'll Go for Warner Brothers Animation. Planned as a globe-trotting animated musical following a young adventurer as they journey through the joys and heartaches and the peaks and valleys of life. Bad Robot are adapting the tale and it's planned for release in 2027. So that's a long way off, but it shows how long they have to plan animated movies. Uh, Finch that we reviewed last week 
has become the most watched original film for Apple TV+. And we both enjoyed it very much, didn't we? It was a, such a solid, heartwarming film. Well recommended. Worth subscribing to Apple TV+. Plus for. Premiered in over 100 countries on the service, it reportedly doubled the opening day audience as the weekend progressed, although actual specific numbers haven't been revealed yet. And Paramount have moved back two of their planned big releases. Transformers Rise of the Beasts has moved a year from June 2022 to June 2023. Principal photography has already finished on the film, so it's the post-production that they get spending more time on. Star Trek, as a result, has moved six months from June 2023 to December 2023, which I think Trek films don't kind of hit the box office in a big way. I think a Christmas time release might do wonders for the franchise because people flock to the cinema for Christmas. The delays come as the newly installed CEO Brian Robbins took over control of the release pipeline. Reasons for the shift are unrevealed, but I do think it's Transformers, they want to make sure that post-production is as polished as it can be. They don't want to diminish that franchise. And Star Trek, like I said, could benefit from a Christmas release. So let's just finish off the news with uh, a couple of trailers that were caught this week. One good, one bad. So let's start with the good. The trailer for Being the Ricardos landed. The soaking look behind the scenes of I Love Lucy. And the personal allegations, political smear and cultural taboos that threaten the relationship between Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. It looks to sizzle with usual soaking energy and dialogue, and it comes to prime in just under a month. Oh, is it? Is it that close? I, I thought it it's was that a, close. a release for next year, because it does look good. I've, I've seen the trailer. It's it, it just looks absolutely solid. I can't wait for this. So, um, yeah, we've got a month to wait, and then it drops onto Amazon Prime. And then the bad is uh, Bruce Willis in a tra- trailer for a film called Fortress. Which looks to be another film. I'm, I'm where just going to stop you just... there, Andy. And you've just said it. You've said far too much already. Um, that's what it. It's 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 he's gone down the Nick Cage route. Um, he's not even gone that far. I mean, Nick Cage at least puts some energy into films that don't really need his energy. Bruce Willis just has no energy. He's phoning in performances, and this trailer has him spouting some really unconvincing dialogue, and then it actually ends with him saying. I'm having fun so flatly that it's very obvious that he isn't and we won't when we watch it. Uh, so Fortress, I will be reviewing when it comes out. <laughs> You're a braver man than I. And that is the news. This is The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Delivered to you every week in stunning techno sound. Presented to you by Andy Meakin and Lee Ford. And if you want to go back and listen to previous episodes, this may be a first time. I'm asking myself why, but if it just in case it is, head over to your favorite podcast platform and hunt down the film file. When you hunted it down, hit that subscribe button and remember to hit like and leave a review. If you want to know more about the film file, you can do so by heading over to Twitter and following us at Film File UK. Head over to Instagram or Facebook. Just look for Film File UK. There we are. You can email us with comments, suggestions, fan theories. Random speculation. Uh, which director you think is going to say they like comic book movies next? Which one do you think doesn't like comic book movies? Podcast at filmfile.uk. And by all means, get in touch. Let us know what your favourite five films of all time are because we've got our 100th episode coming up pretty soon and we're interested to do a, a rapid show where we go through every suggestion and talk about our thoughts on them. So get in touch. Also, if you are in a pub with friends trying to remember the name of that film, you know the one, the one with that man in it doing that thing. Let us know here at The Film File, and we will track down that film. 
or TV series because we're that good. In a new section, we're going to call, who was that man in that film doing that thing? It was The Quick and the Dead. Uh, See, Sam Raimi film. He got it. Got it go. in one. That's how good we are. <laughs> so if you have an interesting film question, you're trying to place that film, let us know here at The Film File, and we'll do all the heavy lifting for you. So as you know, each week, Andy and I do a deep dive into a classic film or films that we loved or films that we think are interesting to talk about. I think this one, this week, falls into the category of films that we love. No, I'll even go as far as to say films that we think are genius and adore. And Andy and I, no surprise, both adore this 1964 musical comedy directed by Richard Lester and starring an English rock band that goes by the name of The Beatles. Of course, we're talking about A Hard Day's Night. Starring John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison and Ringo Starr, filmed during the height of Beatlemania, written by Alan Owen, distributed by United Artists, the film portrays 36 hours in the lives of the Fab Four as they prepare for a television performance. This is probably one of the most influential music films ever. Without this, you wouldn't have got The Monkeys. Without this, you wouldn't have got an offshoot of lots and lots of film, band, movies. And without this, in my humble opinion, you wouldn't have the MTV that we have today. This film is iconic for something which is so low budget and was considered, well, considered throwaway at the time. This is a film that still rings true to this day, importantly for being a unique piece of filmmaking as delivered by Richard Lester, but also importantly for establishing the personalities of what we thought the Beatles were like and something that exists to this day. Paul the heartthrob, John the sardonic leader, George the quiet introvert and Ringo, who delivers an almost Marx Brothers style piece of comedy in this as the Zanny one. And you know what? They were probably right, because one of the tricks of this film is that it doesn't just feel like a film. It feels like an insight into the lives of the Beatles. I love it. I've taught this as part of a, a filmmaking course and talked about it extensively when I've been talking about music video. Watched it again very, very recently, and it still holds together. Despite it being in black and white, despite it looking of its era, it has a freshness to it, the way that Richard Lester shot it handheld documentary-esque it echoes french new wave cinema it echoes elements of uh, the goons the marx brothers and it makes the beatles feel real and for an audience at the time couldn't rely on an mtv this was about as close as you were going to get to seeing the boys in action it's a truly and simply marvelous film um i think i've gushed enough andy do you want to gush some more <laughs> now being from a, from liverpool Obviously, I grew up with the Beatles. I grew up with them being played on the radio. My mum was a huge Beatles fan. My mum used to live around the corner from Ringo Starr when she was growing up. Uh, so she's always been along for the journey uh, through their career. And so the Beatles were very prominent through my life. I got to see this at a very early age and absolutely loved this film when I first watched it. And it's a film that I happily revisit every few years and still enjoy the, the zany energy, the, the momentum. And it's one of those films. I mean, we've spoke about Richard Lester previously when we spoke about Three Musketeers and uh, Superman 2. But it's there's something that he brings to his films that just keeps it creative and energetic and never has wasted moments on screen. There's a lightheartedness, isn't there, to, to, to Dick Lester's films? There's nothing ever anything nasty within his films. It does always, it's always light, it's always fun, and it's always snappy. 
this film sees, you know, sees the Fab Four mobbed and chased by fans, sneak out to parties, attend press conferences, looking very bored when they're doing so, whilst they're rehearsing for an upcoming show and coping beautifully with the interfering antics of Paul's grandfather, played by Wilfred Bramble. Who's very clean. Yeah. If, uh, the great thing is that that joke clearly wouldn't have landed anywhere else in the world but the UK. The fact that they keep referring to Wilfred Bram- Bramble as a clean old man. He's a clean old man, isn't he? Yeah, he's a clean old man. Because he was famous for playing the role of Steptoe on British TV, who was always referred to as, you dirty old man. And that pun alone makes me love this whole film so much. The fact that it didn't want to like just go, oh no, if people don't get it, we can't have this pun in. No, they kept it in there. You said that it was written by Alan Owen. Alan Owen got the job of writing the screenplay for this because he'd impressed the Beatles with his Liverpool-based play, No Trans to Lime Street, showing a flair for Scouse dialogue within. And then he spent some time with the Beatles themselves to prepare for writing for it and started to draw inspiration from their actual personalities, their actual characters in real life, to use as these artificial enhanced versions of them on screen. And even to the extent that the sum of the dialogue is taken from actual dialogue moments that the Beatles themselves used previously in interviews. Ringo calling himself a mocker when he's asked if he's a mod or a rocker came from a previous interview. And it's such a great line. And Ringo himself is notable for having what the band used to refer to as Ringoisms. He used to come out with random words and combinations because that's just how he talked. He'd lose train of thought halfway through and just finish off a sentence, something different. And that's where the title of the movie came from. Well, the song that inspired the movie, A Hard Day's Night, was a Ringoism. In an interview, he'd said on radio, we went to do a job and we'd all worked all day and we happened to work all night. I came up still thinking it was day, I suppose. And I said, it's been a hard day, night. And that's where it all came from. It all came from him stumbling over his words and just bash, bashing things together. Fantastic. Um, the characters of John, Paul, George and Ringo, like I've said, the rough caricatures of the group themselves. And the four of them have a chance to show themselves up and provide jokey wit and banter in the film. John has a marvellous screen presence. He demonstrates an utter confidence in front of the camera in this film. And he went on to star in a few films following, not necessarily Beatles related. And you could see in this very early outing exactly how comfortable he was in the limelight. George and Paul are adequate. George shying away from the limelight a bit, which was kind of like what his shtick was known for. It's only Ringo who kind of struggles at the start of the film. There's one line of dialogue which he puts a forced laugh on and it just sounds so false. But then he steals the film entirely when he breaks from the band and goes for a wander alongside a riverbank after trying to go for a drink for a quiet drink in a pub. And that's the point of the film that you realise Ringo's got a lot more depth to him than what you generally expected. It's, it's interesting you talk about, about performance because there's there's something truly wonderful about watching the four of them on screen is that they, they are confident and comfortable in front of the camera. You never feel as though they're acting. You feel as though, and because of the cinema verite style that that Lester chose to shoot it, you, it is it is a slice of life. Even when it becomes surreal, and there are some of that Dick Lester surreal <laughs> moments that are seen on the train, for instance, uh, the, the the bit you're talking about with with Ringo, hey, Mister, can we have our ball back? We're on our ball back, Mister. <laughs> yeah, all those sorts of things that when it and it and it, it, bear, it, it it flies off into the face of surrealism, which again you kind of think about with the Beatles, and certainly as you saw in Yellow Submarine and Help, that, that it, it kind of captured that. But they are so comfortable on screen. And, and 
you know, these weren't actors. You, you go back, they'd only been stars for a good couple of years. Beatlemania was in its its heyday at the time. But they are so good. And as you say, you know, John really shows, uh, there's the one scene in particular when the woman comes up to him and, and asks who he is. And he went, you are, aren't you? And he, he goes, I might be. And it's it's a beautiful little bit of comic timing. But it never feels as though they've, they've sat and read lines or they're reading lines. She more looks like him than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and they keep doing this thing and you think they tied into it, whether it was the material, whether it was that they were just said, go and say this rather than they read the script as to say, I, I don't know. I don't know what the production process was, but they come across it. While other bands have failed on the big screen, they come across as, as, as likable characters and, 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 and confident. And they, Every time they're on screen, the the screen comes alive because of the sense of humor and the camaraderie that they share, uh, and all this in kind of anticipation of, of the Peter Jackson documentary that's going out on on Disney Plus in just a few weeks. This is what you felt the Beatles were like, and and it traversed into all the rest of of their work, um, including including even Let It Be, which is. Uh, going to be ripe for discussion any day now with with the peter jackson and doctor but i i love it i think it's a really bold film it's a low budget film but they take advantage of it by that that realistic documentary sense of it this is the beatles that you always hope they would be and you share the experience of them going to do that show and and there's an awful lot to be said about the, the price of fame that they they have to deal with you know they're, they're never left alone yeah. for a minute even the end of the film when they're whisked away in, in, in a helicopter they're going on to do this all again it's just a simply beautiful little film that's for such basically what was considered initially as a throwaway film. Go out, make a movie, make an album. We might make a few bob on it. It's become a, a, a classic film and 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 uh, the template for so many of the things. I said the monkeys music video yeah. in particular, the way that Dick Lester shot it. And, and there's still parts of it which feel incredibly contemporary. I'm thinking of the scene on the train where they're playing and the way that it's handheld and backlit. This wasn't how Elvis was doing musical movies. This was something fresh, something different, which was the Beatles in essence. The Monkees is the obvious inspired spin-off from this. But even even down to like, you know, false music documentaries like This Is Spinal Tap is very much influenced by how the approach to this film was. And not even music documentaries, any films or TV of today, you will see the techniques that Lester used throughout this being used quite prominently. Quick edits, handheld camera interviews, Cut, quickly cut segments of dialogue as vox pops and so on and so on. It was hugely influential across the whole industry. Um, it was interesting that prior to its US release, <laughs> Richard Lester was asked whether he could get some other actors to dub the voices of the Beatles with mid-Atlantic accents really? instead. And uh, McCartney angrily replied to it, if we can understand a fucking cowboy talking Texan, then they can understand us talking Liverpool. And it's, it's, I mean, we hear so often these tales of like how US distributors panic when they hear like a non-perfect English speaking accent and they want it overdubbed. I mean, train spotting is another prime example where they wanted it to get um, redubbed in a more understandable accent. I couldn't even imagine someone else talking in a non-Scouse accent as the Beatles. I know that we had other actors voicing the Beatles in Yellow Submarine because the Fab Four by that point had grown disillusioned by the movie industry and thought that it would be a mess and it wasn't and so they got themselves inserted in for like a final scene at the end but Hard Day's Night is an absolute prime film well worth watching. It was followed kind of as a sequel-esque but whole different approach with um, Richard Lester again directing Help. Now Help's a completely different kettle of fish. It's big budget. They are 
not just filming in the UK, they're filming globally, uh, apparently for tax reasons, as I discovered uh, years later. Uh, I've got a, a soft spot for Help. I, I think Hard Day's Night is the best out of the two films, absolutely. But but Help is is Zanny and does feel more like a, like a goons movie than the, some of the essence of uh, Hard Day's Night. Watched it again recently, and you know it doesn't hold together quite as well. But it is it's it's experimental filmmaking. It's again the Beatles were even more confident on the big screen and did more with their performances. I'm thinking of uh, Paul's Adventures on the Floor for those who've seen the film. Yeah, but I do have a soft spot for it. But the essence of a Hard Day's Night, this cinema verite look into into the the boy's life for 36 hours and as the group prepare for that tv performance is just absolutely unique and and i don't use this word very often brilliant uh, over on twitter we asked out of the two beatles films directed by lester which is the best hard day's night had 66.7 percent of the votes help had 33.3 and i kind of agree with that yeah Hard Day's Night is the stronger film, but Help does deserve some love. Okay, we'll be with you again next week with another deep dive. So it's time for review time. Andy, as usual, is way ahead of the game than I am. So let's start with a film that we've both seen. What's the new score? $300 million. Hello, boys. You're under arrest. Read the room. I'll beat her to the punch. We both know how this was going to end. Do you really think you could beat me? There's only one way to find out. I'm really starting to not like you. So after a limited cinema run landing on Netflix this weekend is Red Notice, starring Rock the Dwayne Johnson, one of Andy's uh, Andyisms, we'll call that one. <laughs> uh, Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot in a film that promises an awful lot, but does it deliver? After foiling the plot of a notorious art thief, Nolan Booth, played by, as ever, in the complete Ryan Reynolds style, to steal one of Cleopatra's priceless golden eggs, special agent John Hartley, The Rock, is framed for said egg's subsequent theft by his informant, another notorious art thief known only as the Bishop, who turns out to not be a bishop at all, but Gal Gadot. They're forced into, uh, shall we say, an uneasy alliance with Booth and Hartley, racing to prove his innocence. A lot of promise with this film. Great cast, directed by... Russian Marshall Thurber. Who brought you I Am The Millers and Dodgeball. But did it land? Well, kind of. For me, it was entertaining. If you don't take mm. it too seriously and you can be doing other things like cooking dinner, making a cup of tea playing on your phone it's that kind of film that doesn't need too much of your attention performances are great yeah you they do exactly that you would expect them to do but it's incredibly familiar to catch a thief dirty rotten scoundrels yeah. a bit of national treasure thrown in it's the performances which make it uh, make it interesting but i don't know about you andy well that is the big selling point i just kind of expected more from everybody involved. It's slickly directed. It offers enough action set pieces and heist moments to fill the time out well, but it all just feels generic and uninspired. The stars are fun, but they're just playing their usual shticks a bit too much, and there's no real surprises. Gal Gadot is underused. She's just there for a bit of eye candy and to tease a potential sequel. And it's fun to see Reynolds and Johnson bicker when forced to work together. But anyone who's seen the, the, the much-beloved by us Hobbs and Shaw film has already seen that whole routine played out with Statham and The Rock. So it was offering nothing different than what we kind of expect from a film with The Rock in. 
Only this time, got my my man love, Ryan Reynolds, in the um, second role. But even he was doing familiar shtick, though, wasn't he? Yeah, he was just playing his whole usual routines, his old little like flippant jokes and side cracks, and it just felt underwhelming. By the end of the film, with the blatant attempt to tease the sequel in the final moments, all it was met with was a nonchalant shrug from me. I was like, eh, it was well made. It passed the time, but... I have no lasting memory or impression from it. And this is something that I'm getting a lot from the Netflix action films, that they tick the right boxes. They are made well. The money's been invested well. They're directed well. They've got really good cast, but they're just not offering anything. I found one of the issues with it was was this sort of abundance of CGI to do uh, even the most practical effects with during the action sequences, which again took away any sense of uh, any sense of actual threat for me. I, yeah. I, a bit like you, it, it delivered what you expect it to deliver without anything else. There was you you opened the box; it was exactly how it looked. It tasted exactly how it was going to taste. It just didn't give you anything more to it than that. It, it was just well done, lightweight, uh, fun. But I guess you could also say there's nothing wrong with just a bit of fun. And if your expectations aren't set too high, then it will just reach those expectations, but not really rise above it in any way. I would compare this film to if someone got me a set celebrations advent calendar and I opened every window and it was a bounty. I like bounties, <laughs> but I want a bit more variety than just the same thing. I think we're both in, in total agreement on this one. What else do we have? The first one that I've got is Passing. This looks really interesting. I'm a huge fan of Rebecca Hall as, a, as, a, as an actor. Interesting place to start her directing career, really. Pardon me, I don't mean to stare, but I think I know you. Claire? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to find out the history of the blonde you've brought along. She's a girl from Chicago I used to know. Princess from Chicago. Things aren't always what they seem. Bobby Dan. Lots of people pass all the time. It's easy for a Negro to pass for white. I'm not sure it'd be so simple for a white person to pass for color. So you haven't ever thought to? What? You ever thought of passing? No, why should I? Now I have everything I've ever wanted. This is my husband, John Bellew. Does he know? Do you dislike Negroes, Mr. Bellew? No, 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 not at all. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> so Passing is based on the 1929 novel by Nella Larson. And it's a story about two light-skinned black women who were childhood friends before growing distant, who have a chance encounter that upends their lives. Irene, played by Tessa Thompson, is surprised to find that Claire, played by Ruth Negger, has been living as a white person, known as Passing, and is happily married to John Bellow, played by Alexander Skarsgård, who's completely unaware of her real ethnicity and harbours anti-black sentiment. As the pair rekindle their old friendship, it causes complications for both parties. The film is the directorial debut for Rebecca Hall and is presented in 4-3 ratio on black and white format. Hall has been writing the screenplay for almost a decade prior to it being made, drawing on aspects of her own ancestry. Her mother and grandmother are of mixed ancestry. Negger came on board after discovering the book 
and being astounded that it wasn't a much more prominent and important story. The end result is a well-handled film that covers tricky themes of race in an impressively handled manner. Thompson is timidly anxious throughout, highlighting the nervousness of the black community in a white-dominated world of the 20s. Negger, however, is a tour de force, her years of passing as white, giving her a flair and a confidence that may be her undoing. And she plays as well as ever, but with an underlying tragic sense to the character. There's always something just bubbling under the surface to let you know that she regrets and she despises the life that she's created for herself. Passing is a very impressive debut. The artistic style of presentation may be making it feel a little trivial at times when it could have been more weighty, but afterwards it's a film that lingers with you and it makes you think further on the themes that it explores and the lives it presents. I think Ruth Negger is one of those actors that that always delivers. Same for Tessa Thompson. I think Tessa Thompson's done that really clever thing of being able to walk between you know big budget movies like a, 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 yeah. a Thor movie or... Uh, the Men in Black film, and and then come back into much more personal stuff, and always deliver great performances in in both kinds of uh, kinds of films. It's uh, it's a balancing act for some actors; they can't do that. But she does it does it fabulously. And what was your last one? Cry Macho, Mike, my son Rafael, he's in trouble, and I got to get him out of Mexico. Touch me, and I'll kick your ass, old man. Let's go. Rafael is mine. We got to get out of here. I used to be a lot of things. We all have to make choices in life, kid. You have to make yours. Cremacho. So an old rodeo star and washed-up horse breeder takes a job from an ex-boss to bring a young man's son away from his alcoholic mother. Heading over the border to Mexico to fetch the boy, the weary horse breeder starts to find a bond with the life south of the border and the boy himself during their journey back to the US. Dull and plodding, this film suffers at the start from an exposition backstory dump scene to give us all the history of Eastwood's character relevant to the upcoming narrative in one go as he's fired by his boss. And then immediately afterwards, that same boss hires him to do a job for him despite only just previously pointing out all the reasons he's so unreliable and shouldn't work for him. And at that point, I realised that the film wasn't going to care about making any narrative sense. As the story progresses, and we're expected to accept that Eastwood is an object of desire for two women who are young enough to be his granddaughters, and we also get a kid joining him on the journey, adding, well, lifeless energy to the mix, and the film barely plods to a finale. The young actor playing the kid is dreadful, offering no connection no bond no chemistry with Eastwood himself you have to give respect to Eastwood for still making movies into his 90s but at the same time this feels uneasily like a last gasp effort from a director who has become pretty bland over the past decade I I don't know about Clint Eastwood now I I mean the man's had a great run funny enough I've just read uh, one of the very early scripts for, for Dirty Harry over the last week is it time to call it a day? You know, the, the, it's 90 odd and he's still working. And, and I think he's better behind the camera now than in front of the camera. But he's, as you said, his work's seriously gone downhill since uh, American Sniper. And even in his his, his later career, he's, had, he's, he's done some great work like Million Dollar Baby. But his work seems to suffer now from old manitis. And not yeah. bring anything fresh to it, and it's uh, you know get these new filmmakers off my lawn type thing. And the big the, one of the biggest issues is that in front of the camera now he is visually very old and stumbling and struggling. 
And when you're expected to believe that he's the object of desire for two women who are young enough to be his granddaughters in a film, it just becomes a joke. It becomes almost laughable. Yeah, you just want to put him in his big chair, put a cover over him and bring him some cocoa and wake him up after the Queen's speech, don't you, at that particular point? Or maybe a pillow over his face and like try <laughs> to grab the inheritance, one or the other. <laughs> but ultimately, I can't see myself being drawn to this, as I unfortunately have not been drawn to Clint Eastwood's recent work anyway. So that's the reviews, Andy. What have we got streaming or coming out over the next week? Cinemas is exciting this weekend with Ghostbusters Afterlife, which is this. the long-awaited so long. update, pick-up, sequel. Uh, there's also King Richard, which is the biopic of the Williams sisters and their rise to fame under the tutorship of their father. And with, there's also Rocky Four, the, the director's cut. We've been talking about this for weeks, haven't we? Which is getting quite a few shows because it's selling quite well across cinemas across the UK. I'm kind of, should I, shouldn't I? Should I bother? Shouldn't I bother? I don't know. I was never a big fan in the first place. I'm not a big fan of Rocky Four. I'm hoping that this corrects the issues that I have with Rocky Four by making it feel more like a standard Rocky film than the flag-waving patriotic nonsense that it actually was. Over on streaming, Now TV and Sky has Military Wives. I spoke about it last year. Worth checking out. Netflix sees the Ryan Reynolds in Detective Pikachu, a beloved film of the past few years. It's Tiger King Season 2 for people who want that obsession back in their lives. Star Trek Discovery Season 4 lands this week. Tick, Tick, Boom lands on Netflix. It's currently got a limited cinema release. It goes to Netflix this Friday. And Cowboy Bebop, the series. So it's all about Netflix this week, by the looks of it. And so we're going to be talking a lot about Netflix next week, I reckon. Yeah, I just got asked to do some stuff for the BBC before we started recording, saying, what can you recommend that's coming up? And I go, I know it's all on Netflix, I'm afraid. Yeah, every, everything's Netflix at the moment. Amazon, for people who love Stephen King, get a chance to revisit Doctor Sleep because that lands on Prime this week. And also Wheel of Time Season 1 lands this week on Amazon, which I've got my eye on. I'm going to be checking it out to see what it's like. You never know, it might formulate one of my neat things. So as a wonderful segue, as ever by Andy, let's talk about our neat things. Those are things that we have done, seen, watched, ate, you name it, as long as it's a neat thing, as long as we enjoyed about it, we'll talk about it. And this week's neat thing for you, Andy, is... My neat thing this week, and I'm surprised I haven't spoken about this already, because we're now up to the third episode, and it's Doctor Who this season. Okay, that's interesting. I've got some thoughts on that. This is the fi- going to be the final full season with Jodie Whittaker. And there's been a lot of negative criticism across Jodie Whittaker's run with Chibnall behind the scenes. I've got love for what Chibnall was bringing and having met the guy himself and spoken to him about his love of Doctor Who when he grew up, he had the same love as I did. And it's with this season of Doctor Who that you can see his inspiration. You can see that he was inspired by the Tom Baker era because this is a throwback to overreaching stories such as The Key of Time which took multiple stories, but themed them all together for an ongoing story arc. We're on Doctor Who Flux. Flux is the overall branching arc story, but it's in the background while other events are taking place. And I am loving this structure. I am loving the fact that it's it's building to be six episodes of a continuous tale. I'm loving the fact that the characters are getting to divert off and do other things. And bizarrely, I was expecting to hate John Bishop. And he's still not a good actor. He's still not great. But I'm not hating him. 
And I think that's got to be a positive. I'm two episodes in. Saw the first episode and thought it was a bit of a mess. I thought it was they spent too much time jumping between everything that was going to, to pay off at some later date and came away a little bit disappointed by episode one. Apart from, I agree with you about John Bishop, Much, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised. And they've done what they've done with Bradley Walsh. Utterly, utterly surprised by how likeable that character is. Uh, and, and so much so that I'm, I'm missing Bradley Walsh. Jodie Whittaker is just fantastic. And it just proves the point to me that whoever plays the Doctor is always playing the Doctor. Yeah. It doesn't matter what sex or what, what creed you're going to be as the next Doctor, you'll always be playing the Doctor. And I think she's fantastic. And I, I, I have found this particular run to be very, very patchy. By episode two, I was in. Had a really old style Doctor Who episode. Them going back in time, which I really missed. Uh, and mm. and having an adventure and then moving on with next week there's going to be an adventure uh, and interestingly enough the the villains in it are, are absolutely superb they are really yeah. creepy so much so that, that the little boy had to hide behind the cushion when they came on because they look creepy and there is just a way of in their deliverance which makes them even a little bit more frightening so i'm with episode two completely in it's interesting to see the reaction online because even people who haven't liked the previous seasons at all and have been so adamant that chibnall needs to leave are starting to change their opinion now and going oh man if he could have pulled this out the bag on season one it would have been a fantastic run and we had this during the capaldi era that the first two seasons weren't universally embraced, but his final season had such great stories that people changed their opinion of what he was as the Doctor. It's, it looks like Jodie Whittaker's Doctor's going to go out on a high with this. Fingers crossed it all pays off over the six episodes. Uh, I hope so, Andy. I've been a lifelong Doctor Who fan, and it, all through it's all a bit ups and downs. Okay, so my neat thing. I signed up to Audible for the free month thing that you can do. Uh, and downloaded initially an Alice Cooper book, which I wanted to hear, and then found myself listening to and totally engrossed by Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So if you don't know, Tarantino has turned the script and the story into a novel. Let's get one thing straight from the get-go. He's not a great novelist. John Grisham, you've got nothing to worry about. Stephen King, don't turn in your day job because he's not a great writer. Of course, there are the moments of, of actual flourish of great dialogue, which you would totally expect anyway from Tarantino. But instead of doing a straight version of his own script, he's, he's used it as a starting off point. So We've got some of the scenes, not necessarily in the right order, to kind of quote Eric Morecambe, told with, with a, a, a different slant. So as well as you know the movie, the book unfolds in a very, very different way, giving you uh, more detail into the character's existence, more about the life in, in um, the late 60s, early 70s of Hollywood. Of course, there are huge rants about uh, TV directors and TV actors that only the most geekiest of people would ever remember. A couple of them I did. Uh, but I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's been read by Jennifer Jason Leigh, you remember from Hateful Eight. And again, like all good audibles, she plays each character and each character has a distinctive voice and a, dif a different intonation the way she delivers it. Thoroughly good read. I'm three hours into a 12-hour book. Interesting to see because I hear it goes off in a different direction towards the end. So whether you pick it up on Audible or you decide to read it, my recommendation, my neat thing, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino. And that, folks, is it for this week. And as ever, it's our pleasure to bring you a bit of film geekery every week. We'll be back again next week with another show, another deep dive, even more news. So, Andy, there you go, hiding behind a smokescreen of bourgeoisie clichés. Music